be there. It's not, you know, their 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 underfoot conditions is always very good. So, you know, it's um, it 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 will lead to more attractive and faster rugby. That's great. And finally, I suppose we'll move on the year the year twenty twenty two for the Ireland rugby team. As we know, the year before last, it wasn't. Uh, you know, they were kind of still finding their way, things weren't kind of going their way. But I suppose in 2022 at the start, you know, I suppose more more or less in the Six Nations, uh, you know, it really did, there, there really was signs that Ireland, this Ireland team was getting there. I suppose that the the the, the players were starting to understand the way that that Andy Farrell wanted to play rugby. And of course, you know, I suppose he was learning a lot about the players as well and things like that. So they had a good Six Nations as well, but then, you know, they had other, they had a summer tour and then they had a, they had a, obviously a very successful, uh, November internationals as well and also the women's. So I suppose both the men's and the women's, uh, rugby, rugby, Ireland rugby team, uh, could you take us through that for the 2022? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, there are six nations, um, like as I say, and Andy was getting his his team together. They, uh, yeah, they um, they they played uh, a different um, form of rugby, um, and you know players had to get used to that coming in from the from the various uh, provinces. But he has blended a great side together, and that showed by the tour um, that they had uh, down to um, New Zealand uh, during the summer when they when they won two out of the three tests, and you know that was a, a tremendous achievement to, against, against the All Blacks. And then they had a, brought a second string down as well, um, and they they accounted for themselves extremely well. So there is strength and depth now within Andy's team. And then we came into the November internationals and. Again, we had a clean sweep in in the November games. Um, they they were, you know, tough games, particularly against the world champion South Africa. That was a very physical game. The first game in November, and then the last game was against Australia. Uh, another tough game to have come out the right side with. Um, you know, it's it's you have changes. You have a lot of changes uh, across the water now. You have. Uh, changes in, in Wales, a new manager, uh, Warren Gatlin, who coached here in Connacht, who coached in uh, in Ireland uh, for Ireland, and, and also uh, he's coached before uh, for Wales. He's back in as head coach again in in Wales, and you had the change. You have a change in England now as well. So you know th- these will be uh, all changes coming in now for the new year. Um, our first fixture is the first weekend in February away away to Wales so it will be a tough one uh, you know every, every time that you you go to uh, Cardiff it's it's not simple and with the home support um, Ireland will have to be you know clued into the game very well Aidan I want just to say a, a big thank you um, for running this programme and uh, for the amount of coverage that you have given uh, given rugby and particularly to us in, in, in Craig's Rugby um, uh, and to Seamus Duke and to the to Roscommon FM and, and to all the listeners for, for, for tuning in and I want to wish you all a uh, very happy Christmas uh, to, all, to you and to all your families and, and also a, a prosperous new year. And we will be back uh, in in the new year, hopefully, that, that we all get over the Christmas good. Thank you very much. 
No problem. And I'd like to wish you and your family all the best as well. Have a happy Christmas and a prosperous new year. Uh, thanks very much for your for uh, being with us for uh, 2022. And we look forward to talking to you uh, in, in the new year where hopefully we'll see success, uh, even more success with Craig's Rugby at all levels. And of course, um, the three clubs, that we, the other three clubs, Buccaneers, uh, Buccaneers, Carrick Rugby Club and of course Sligo and of course Connacht as well that are doing great work there um, you know it's certainly exciting times with the new young players that have come into the squad and of course with next year being a World Cup year hopefully Ireland can have a good Six Nations which will be a great springboard for uh, for the World Cup coming up uh, in September so thanks very much for uh, 2022 and we look forward to talking to you then Thank you very much, Aidan. More thanks very much. And that was uh, Adrian Leddy uh, from uh, Craig's Rugby Club doing rugby. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? You're very welcome to this week's Formula One View with myself, Aidan Rafferty. And, of course, as always, we have the world's number one expert on Formula One. That is the great uh, Michael the great Michael O'Grady. Hello, Michael. How are you? Are you well? I'm not too bad at all, the... the interviewer of all time Aidan Raffer well this is it you know one one good turn deserves another um, so yeah last week as, as I said we Absolutely. did um, we had the review of the 2022 season and that was a, a very it has to be said a very thorough review of the season and uh, it was very interesting going, going back through all the, the details of, of what was uh, I suppose a very a very interesting season in many ways but uh, so now that now that the uh, season is over we're going to do a new thing uh, until the uh, until the season starts again next year we're going to be concentrating we're going to be looking back at the careers of some legendary Formula 1 drivers from the past isn't that right Michael? That's right indeed we're going to be looking at different people from the past um, week on week off as to say we, we, we pick some of our favourite drivers from the past um, this week uh, you can tell them all who it is but it's a very favourite driver of mine that I used to watch when I was uh, when I was quite young I suppose I was um, I was out of secondary school it was Well, that's it. And of course, the uh, the driver this week in question is uh, the legendary Jean Alessi. Yes, it is indeed. Uh, born Giovanni Alessi. Why that is Jean, I have no idea. I'm Somebody else that's smarter than us will tell us. It's probably a, a short name, you know yourself. But um, he driver, but he is of Italian origin. Now, that's going to shock a lot of groundwork because people believe... He's a French driver. I suppose technically, theoretically, he is. But, you know, he hails from Italy originally when he was very, very young. So, look, <laughs> can open worms everywhere, as they say. All right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, we, we don't want to get all geopolitical now on this. You know, we, we don't want to be, we don't want to disgruntle any uh, any Italian uh, Formula One fans there. You know, it's. Uh, but uh, I think we're being very diplomatic there. You know, he's classed as a as a French driver, but but he's uh, of Italian origin. So I think that kind of covers both. I think that covers everything, really. And, and, and of course, as we know in his career, he drove for many teams. And when he was in with Ferrari for for so. He was very popular because you know yourself, it's like everything. If you have an Irish team to have an Irish driver driving, you just can't ask for better, really, can you? Well, this is it, you know, Rip. You know, you have so many, uh, so many legendary um, Formula One drivers from Ireland, such as yourself. No, 
in the city. Paul has been known on many occasions to uh, drop down for chips, uh, uh, you know, very late on a Friday. To, you know, to, to, to head out or whatever, you know, and uh, if you've seen him going down the road, you'll, you'll understand. <laughs> well, that's it, and that literally is fast food, isn't it, huh? It's as fast as you could possibly guess, is to say. Yeah, it really is. Um, well, I suppose we're, we're digressing a bit. Back to Jean Alessi. Um, he's a great driver. He really was. He had uh, great successes in, 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 in minor categories, really. Uh, 1989, he won the Formula 3000 Championship. The Formula 1 with a team called Tyrrell. You know, things really went well. He was a very popular driver, and sort of strange aggressive style of driving which in some cases you would have said suited uh, some conditions but the funny thing about him is aggressive driving and uh, wet conditions never really work out together Uh, with him Absolutely stunning in the wet. If you ever see a man in a wet race, if you if you're on YouTube or whatever, uh, look up John Alesi. Look 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 at him driving in the wet. He really was something else. I have to admit, um, very 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 impressive man, as to say. You know yourself, it was a, it's absolutely incredible. When did he start? Well, he started in 1989 with Tyrrell. Um, quite successful career with Tyrrell, I have to admit. It was the French Grand Prix. Uh, Paul Ricard is where he, he uh, started out. Tyrrell at the time, oh, we're going back now, uh, <laughs> had a Ford engine, as they say. That's, that's kind of one you don't hear that often, Aidan. Is it a Ford engine? <laughs> and I suppose looking at uh, Jean Alessi now, um, you know, obviously we're, we're aware of the cars that he would have driven. Obviously, like I said, totally different to the ones now. But what, what what do you think his thoughts will be about the cars the cars that are uh, in Formula One nowadays? And uh, I suppose if he if he was to get into a Formula One car and uh, do um do a Grand Prix a Grand Prix and uh, the the ones that are being driven now, how he get on? Well, I, I it's a horse of a different color, of course, with the, with the Formula One cars these days. It's just bells and bells and whistles it's, it's almost, almost like modern cars you know you used to have a steering wheel and the gear stick these days you you have to look to see what the onboard computer is telling you half the time which I, I always see kind of really takes away driving but you know the fact that cars were old um, people expect them to be a lot slower but that actually isn't the case. These things were, they looked very different. There's no arguing there. They did look very, very different, but they were very, very fast. Um, if you cast your mind back to a top gear back in the days of uh, uh, Clarkson, Hammond and May, as they say, Jeremy Clarkson um, decided he was going to get a Formula One car. And, and he actually got a, a Lotus T125 Okay, it was built by Lotus in 2010, so, but you would expect that sort of to, you know, be quite slow compared to modern cars. Now, you know, Jeremy Clarkson wouldn't be shy of a fast car, you'd have to say, but as he got the Lotus, you know, you'd assume at a price you could buy this car for 650000 or you could rent it for a track day. And, you know, to buy that sort of price, you should come equipped with a full crew, Catering to your needs, you know, um, cook and chefs and all that sort of thing, uh, a team truck. And, of course, 
a driver. And of course, it came out with John Lacey. And I'll never forget it because it was absolutely, I think, one of the funniest moments of television I ever saw because you could actually see, you know, Clarkson trying to beat the Stiggs time, who did a respectable enough time in the Formula One car on the top gear track. But, um, <laughs> you know, you could see John Lacey. What's the Lacey difference, Michael? Uh, there was at the time, there was a couple of seconds in the difference. All right, Clarkson's no, not shabby at all. Um, but now, as I said to people before when they were looking at you, you have to remember the Sting jumped into that car and did a time. He didn't get, he didn't um, go and practice in it. He didn't do five or six times. He just jumped into it and did a time. Now, that, that in itself is very- um, to be able to jump into a machine like this out of nowhere because, you know, the Stig, who we know who he was later on uh, at the time, wasn't the Formula One driver. So, you know, to be able to do that was kind of impressive. But Clarkson was a bit down, but I, I never forget the look. And, uh, you know, Clarkson's coming in and he's looking all there's no grip, there's no grip. And John O'Casey looks at him and he says, if you drive a lot faster, grip. if you drive much, much faster, there will be no grip. If you drive really much, much faster, then you'll get grip. <laughs> it's just so funny. Yeah. Uh, there's a horse with it from colour, as they say, you know, and um, he did drive it, they didn't uh, time him, but let's just say it's a lot quicker than the stick. <laughs> you want to be, really. Taking John Lazy was were to go head to head in a, a, a doing a lap or two, that would have been that would be interesting, and it would be interesting to see the time that would have been done. Absolutely, it would have been interesting. They didn't time him in the end. He, he actually, I, I think John spent more time laughing on that than he did anything else. He's he's always, he's always a smiley fella, like you know, he always had good yeah. things to say and that you know. But I think he spent a lot of time laughing at things like that. Now, obviously, you know that was that was near the end of his career. That said. Well, what a Formula One career he had. I mean, he started off driving in Tyrrell, um, which was, you know, a good race team at the time. If a bit under... They were the top of the top, as they say. Um, and they were run by a Ford engine. But, I mean, he had really some good talent with those. I think it was Monza. Um, he put the Tyrrell in fifth place, even though it was massively slower really I mean he was a less than a second slower than, than Senna's pole time you know how <laughs> much better than John Alessi was <laughs> you know yeah, but it was back it. in the day the, uh, the old V12 engines you know and things like that so I mean he actually passed uh, the much more powerful V12 um, Ferrari at the time at the rainy rainy in that race. Uh, it was absolutely incredible, I have to admit. He really did. And, and obviously re- impressed Ferrari enough because then in 1991, he joined Ferrari. He had actually, funny enough, signed a contract with Williams. Um, but Williams were delaying signature for some reason. Um, and eventually, they were trying to get Senna, who they were kind of couldn't make up their minds. So Lacey basically went along and said, well, I've had enough of that. Um, and Ferrari were impressed. And to Ferrari. Um, but he wasn't to stay there long. Back then, I suppose, Aiden, it, it was a lot different. You know, you didn't sign three-year contracts. You didn't sign five-year contracts. You, you got what you could get. And if you were a good driver, you got a lot more offers. You know, that's just yeah. the way it was back then. You know, you... So was it a bit more kind of... Like year to year, or would it have been more long term? Well, I suppose it depends on how well you were doing and um, how good a driver you were. 
But well, well, that, 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 that's a contract you got. Yeah, basically that would have been it. I mean, you 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 would think one year, two years with Terrell is a very short period of time, but it was year on year on for him. And I suppose the biggest the biggest commitment he had was to Ferrari. I mean, he was there from ninety one to ninety five with Ferrari, but that's was a year-on-year-on sort of contract. After that, he went to uh, Benetton for two years, then Sauber for two years, then Prost for a year, uh, and ended up, of course, in, in 2001, ending up with his uh, career with a, a very, very good racing team, which I think a lot of people will identify with, which is, uh, of course, Jordan. Um, that's where he finished up his career. Funny enough... This is, this is a situation that is kind of odd because um, I just after tumbling there, he finished his career with Jordan. And Michael Schumacher actually started his career with Jordan F1. There's a good one for you now. Not a lot of people yeah, know that one. Yeah, yeah now would you have ever seen like where maybe um, a driver would start a team, start their uh, their career in Formula One? with one team and maybe go to other teams and then come back and actually end their team and end their career with the with the team that they started with. I don't actually know. That's something I'm going to have to look up. I not I can't remember seeing that. Um, I, I think at this stage, probably the person who's been in the same team the longest would be probably Lewis Hamilton. He's still in Mercedes. Um, most people would have moved on at this stage. I mean, even Schumacher, seven years, eight years or so at Ferrari, and then he was gone. Um, you know, so he's he's had a very long time. It's, it's, I think there's a difference. I think some teams are willing to take on the responsibility of getting in a new young driver who's been quite successful um, these days. But, but back then it wasn't really. If you were on top, you were one of the top teams like, you know, Ferrari or Williams, you really were picking from the top guys. You weren't picking a newcomer, you know. So uh, that was the way that was. And then as you're going out, something that still happens to this day, actually, when it, when a driver is getting, you know, near his ending years, to say, teams tend to take them on who basically would like their experience so they can find out more about the car and how to improve it and how to improve situations. Like Sebastian Vettel and, and, and Fernando Alonso are currently doing. Um, you know, well, Sebastian Vettel retired this year, but, you know, the new team of Aston Martin brought in Sebastian because they needed to develop that car to get somewhere. And you can't really do that with the new books in the field because, you know, they don't, they don't, I suppose experience is against them where, you know, someone like Fernando Alonso or Sebastian Vettel, well, you know, these guys know what you need to win and they know how to handle it and they know what a car should do. So, most of the time, no. <laughs> they don't actually end up in the same place at the same time, or, you know, the same place to start it as, as, as finishing, as I say. It would be nice for someone to do it just to give us something to talk about, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, there you go. It'll be just, uh, just an, another angle on, on Formula One view. But uh, yeah. I suppose, you know, the way, like, nowadays you have the whole, um, I suppose, Lewis Hamilton, Max Verstappen thing. Who would, it, who would have been his... Um, who would have been the Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton back in his? So if he if he was Max Verstappen, who would who would be his Lewis Hamilton? Who would be his nearest competition? Oh well, I suppose with with poor old John Alesi, he was fighting up against all sorts of people. You know, Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher. Actually, he was fighting up against quite a lot 
of legendary names and um, it wasn't easy for him. It really wasn't going up against drivers like that because I, I think sometimes it's one thing I've always thought about Jean Alessi. He, he's, he's a very legendary character. You know, everybody knows him in Formula One. But the man has actually only ever won one race in all the years he was in Formula One. And, and you have to cast your mind back um, to Canada in 1995, believe it or not, for that one. And again, you know, it was a great race for him. But again, he had great names around him. You know, Gerhard Berger, there's a name you haven't heard in a while. Rubens Barrichello. Um, who else was there? Eddie Irvine would have been there at that stage, actually, as well. He would have been driving for Jordan with Rubens at the time. Uh, Damon Hill. Uh, people like that, really, uh, I mean, out of that lot, really, Michael Schumacher, Gerhard Berger. Yeah, they're two drivers. Probably about around those days as well, wouldn't they? Yeah, you're going head-to-head with those guys, you're in trouble, like, you know. <laughs> you know, so there, there, there's a lot of, those two in particular now would be, you know, pretty legendary drivers. And of course, you had um, McLaren at the time were running Mika Hakkinen, uh, another world champion in there as well. You know, it's, um, yeah, a lot of big drivers there. In in that particular race, the only one he actually won, he actually qualified in sixth place and drove an absolute storm, an absolute storm through the field. There, there was a lot of sort of unlucky situations too. Um, I mean, really, Michael Schumacher should have won the race, but... As the race went on, there was a big problem. Uh, you know, he was lap 57-ish. He started getting electrical problems in the car and he had to go into the pits and um, he had to come back out again. Now, it's amazing when you think that the man went into the pits and still came out and um, still did quite good, come, come back out in fifth. Like, you know, you don't see that too often, you know. Um, but that's the way it was. John Alessi drove a blinding drive, I have to admit, to get ahead of everybody by Schumacher. And then, you know, took advantage, you know, if your Bennett and Renault has electrical faults, sure. How many races have been won in that way through the years? Quite a few, <laughs> as to That's say, it. you know. But it was his one and only win, I have to admit, which, you know, looking back on his career is something that I didn't pick up on until I started looking back, you know. Uh, the Canadian circuit is a, is a particularly tough one. I think it suited him down to the ground. Um, but you know, it was it was really really unusual. I have to admit um, that he didn't win more than that. And, and what also was curious, because <laughs> there's another little curious one for me, of course, was uh, Michael Schumacher was ri- driving uh, the the Benetton back then, the Benetton Renault, and was world champion. So that one was out out of the bag anyhow. But John Alesi won in a Ferrari, so. It's almost like one handing off to the other, nearly, isn't it? <laughs> that's it. And that's I'm, really, I'm, reading, I'm reading something that's not there, but go on anyway. <laughs> I, I mean, I suppose you know it, it is kind of one of those one of those generational things that uh, you know nowadays you have one driver that stands out for a year or two years. So we say like Max Verstappen. He blew the opposition away from about. He had the opposition blown away by the by by halfway through the season, and yeah. so he was the main man. And then there was the second and third or whatever. Then the next two of them was a uh, would be a sizable difference. But in John Lise's era or in his time, in John Lise's time, there was more competition. So I suppose competition was more even, as in. You know that it was uh, drivers were more equal. I should say, yeah, to a lot of extent, yeah, they were. It, it was a lot. 
I feel it was a lot tougher um, because, yeah. you know, not only did you have, you know, different different tyre makers, um, you didn't have like four compounds of soft tyre and four compounds. You just had the soft tyre. That was it. That's what's going. And, and then, of course, you had different tyre, two different tyre manufacturers. Of course, you had pit stops. And these cars, you know, even Michael Schumacher said they can be a bit like trucks to drive sometimes, very fast trucks, you know. They're, they're, they're not exactly, they don't behave as well, uh, shall we say, um, as all, as the newer cars. They, they didn't behave well at all. It was a very tough drive for them, you know. And, um, you know, you see sparks flying quite a lot because the suspension wasn't as rigid as it is these days, you know. But, you, know you wouldn't say that there was no kind of, well, we say even in an average, even in a normal car, there's power steering. Power steering probably wasn't it wasn't the thing back in those days either. <laughs> no, you had biceps. <laughs> you, you'd want to be in the gym a lot. Yeah, absolutely, you do. Yeah, it's uh, it's just it's just funny, really, the the, the way things go around and, and switch around yeah. and, and things like that. You know, actually, there's another one there. Um, 1996, it's amazing now that I'm looking at it, the amount of swapping through with, with one particular person. Schumacher joined forces with Ferrari in 1996, leaving Benetton. And that's when, actually, John Alessi went from Ferrari into Benetton. There you are, another, <laughs> another situation, yeah. another crossover. I don't know, someone's trying to tell me something, I think, Aiden, or else I'm going blind, one or the other. <laughs> well, it's kind of a thing that uh, maybe, uh, just to get your thoughts on, you know the way, like, nowadays, uh, you know, certain drivers kind of come through, you, you were saying that he went, that John Alessi came through the different, uh, different types of uh, racing, motor racing, and uh, obviously, the, it, it happened to one or two nowadays. But what, what you know, back then and now, is there more kind of kudos for motor for um, former one drivers that have taken the long route, as in done the different types of uh, motor racing, or is there more thought that the person that just comes straight into Formula One? I think actually that's a good point because a lot of guys these days start the kind of uh, the, the 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 junior kind of club shall we say, you know, um, they'll be pulling through racing drivers themselves. Like Red or they'll Bull be an academy or something and they, they just go into an academy for a Formula One team and work from there rather than kind of getting an experience of the different types of motor racing. Well, that would be quite a lot of it, yeah. There, there would hmm. be they, they would be in something like that and then they would be with that team um, until the drive, you know, comes along. Uh, Max Verstappen came in that way amongst a few other people, you know. They have this driver's academy and every so often, um, I, I think it's a good thing that it was written into the FIA rules and regulations that they had to try, you know, a couple of rookie drivers and test sessions during the year um, with Formula One uh, cars. But of course, these guys which, are again. Which, which, like, would you say would would you be a better drive for doing it the John Lisa way and doing the different types of race of motor racing, or doing the the academy way the way it's done now, or the way well, most drivers do now? I think it's a funny thing. Uh, I actually think I and a lot of people would have a bit more respect for someone who fights through it themselves um, mm. rather than starting at an, at an academy. I mean, you know, there, 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 there's no doubt in the fact that Formula One racing is a, is a multi-millionaire's game, as to say, you know, and, and a lot of drivers used to have to come in with actually sponsorships with them, bringing money to the team when they go to drive for that team. Um, you know, so I mean, they would have had to have worked 
very hard to get into that Formula One racing car to get up there. They really would have had to push it. I mean, with, with Alessi, of course, there was always a taste of motorsport there. His father actually won a, a, a bodywork repair garage, believe it or believe it not. And um, he kind of... He's a keen amateur competitor in rallying and hill climb events and things like that, you know. And, uh, you know, he sometimes lend rally cars to family and friends and, and, and did borrow a car here and a car there. And it was absolutely fantastic to say that. I mean, Alessi really started his career with a bit of a passion for, rally, for uh, rallying rather than anything else. And he took up uh, go-karting in 16. Now, that, that was a, it's, it, it's one that's always sort of stuck in my head um, in that a lot of people Michael Schumacher's another one uh, there's a few um, Max Verstappen's another one really went straight into go-karting and won in go-karting now that's a very interesting unlike Formula 1 everything like that Every single go-kart are identical. There is no difference. They all have the same engines. They all have the same structure, same steering, same tyres, same everything. Um, so if you're going to win in go-karting, yeah, I think that's kind of a special driver straight there, straight away. Like, you know, it's it's kind of incredible. And, and John Lissi went straight from that. Uh, go-kart, he graduated in about 83, I think it was. He, he entered the French Renault 5 Turbo Championships where he ran for quite well on that before moving up to, to Formula 3 and then he won that in seven and then into Formula 3 test in 1988 so I mean he's well rounded when you think about it just yeah. like you were saying yeah rounded he's won events and of course I suppose having your father who has uh, big into cars that works with cars and all that that doesn't hurt either does it really <laughs> that's, that's true too and uh, I suppose that that's where it's uh, kind of and I suppose nowadays um, the, the way things are doing it's probably um, due to health and safety and all that I suppose the FIA the FIA um, will probably favour the, the kind of I, I suppose the more kind of academy, like each team having their academy and the drivers coming through that way are, you know, would they rather that, you know, the people that a driver kind of go has samples to different types of motorsport and then come into Formula One. But I suppose either or it doesn't matter. So long as the, so long as the driver is able to sit into a Formula One car and, and, and win races, I suppose, to, to, to give it its simplest uh, formula. Absolutely, and, and and that's the way to do it. But it's nice to see people like, uh, you know, people back then, a lot of them did make it under their own steam. You know, you see John Alessi and he's fighting there with this car and that car and, you know, getting into the Renault Turbo S and, and all that sort of thing, fighting his way, trying to do well at racing. Now, you know, as to whether he had aspirations to Formula One or not, probably not at the time. Um, maybe when he went into Formula 3, that was in his head. But, you know, he fought his way through that. And, and I mean... You know, you can't help but look at people, big people like Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher, people like that who did exactly the same thing. Michael Schumacher basically cut his teeth in karting. And I, I, I even remember watching the documentary, he couldn't afford new tyres. So he used to go and see all the tyres the last were throwing away and pick up the better ones and put them on the car. So he was driving with tyres that nobody really wanted, you know, and still winning. So it, it's great. great when you see people doing that and being able and the drivers' academies are great. Um, I think the teams' academy—it's it's a bit like okay, 
I'm going to make an analogy now, and please, nobody kill me. Um, pop music these days, you know, you know the stuff you're listening to on the radio. There is a kind yeah. of uh, cases that people who make it big are of a of a type of music that you can understand. Um, take somebody off the top of their head, Ed Sheeran. He's uh, he's a nice guy. There's no arguing. He's very talented. There's bass music. There's no arguing. You know, you, the, the, the record companies are getting someone they can understand and someone that they can sort of control. Well, with him, with him, I know where we're getting off the Formula One, but I, I see the analogy where you're coming from because, like, he started off busking, uh, 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 you know, in front of shopping centres and, uh, you know, he was discovered that way, but he, he worked Absolutely. hard and his talent was spotted. Whereas now, Ginny, yourself and myself could write a song and go on X Factor and... You know, even if you don't win it, you're still you're still seen on X Factor and like I mean Jedward. Well, there you go. There's a classic <laughs> example. I see the analogy where you're coming from. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what I was thinking. Thinking, you know, he just, you know, Ed has talent. John Lacey had talent. You know, I, I'm not saying the manufactured bands don't have talent. They do have talent, but. You know, it, it, it's a different. They don't have longevity. Some of the some of the bands that are go go that way, like you know, that are in Britain's Got Talent or X Factor, they don't last as long as we say we say other bands that 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 kind of like. We, I suppose the best one is U two. You know, yeah. they, they you know they don't have that sort of lifespan. The exactly. bands nowadays, yeah. Exactly, and 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 when you think of people like Bowie, was was too was too weird for opportunity knocks and had to go off and do his own thing, you know. And look yeah. at the legend that's there. So so perhaps people like him that do their own thing and become successful. To me, that that that's much more impressive. And, and indeed, you know, way too lazy. You know, I mean, he he finished his years out as to say in Jordan in two thousand and one, but. That didn't stop him because he went off with McLaren and, and, and basically he was recruited for tyre development. Uh, he, he managed over 224 laps over a three-day period uh, with McLaren and just sorting out how the car is running with the tyres, as to say. You know what I mean? That That's, that's something you don't really hear. Uh, 2002 to 2006, he was actually in the German Touring Car Championship, different type of car, was that the end of his career? No, it wasn't. He was actually in the speed cars. 2009 with a few other ex-Formula 1 drivers. Johnny Herbert was in there. That's a name we don't hear around for a while. Ukiyo Katayama. There's a name. In that as well. In this- That's another yeah. one. I heard that name last <laughs> Yeah, I am telling you, it was basically, uh, what was it? It was, a, it was a championship really in, in the run, you know? So, I mean... He ran that. He ran Le Mans. And, um, you know, not hanging around whatsoever, is to say, you know. And he actually drove um, with the Lotus team in 2011. He's even done the Indianapolis 500. He did that in 2012. And he was also, 2013 there, I see, he became an ambassador the tire manufacturer. So, well, you nearly finished in 2001, but you're not finished. <laughs> you know, Formula One, Formula One, um, I suppose, careers, the career of Formula One drivers uh, back then and now uh, for, for the likes of uh, Jean, Jean Lacy, 
was was his career the same length of time as we say um, a Formula One driver nowadays, or or you know were drivers back then? Did they were they in Formula One for a lot longer than they are nowadays, or vice versa? Or is it about is it the same as back then? I think if you're a good Formula One driver these days, you have a longer. I mean, in F1 itself, John lazy has been a, a racing driver for quite some time. There's no arguing there. Um, but in Formula One, he only lasted really 12 years, which isn't actually that long for a good driver. He's regarded. He was never world champion. He's only ever won one race. Most of the time in any of the cars he's in, he's kind of hitting above a station. He shouldn't be doing as well as that, but he manages to do it. Um, so he's a very popular, very low. Like a driver, but then twelve years like that. He says no. He did. He definitely under. They wouldn't be uh, letting him go anywhere too quickly. You know. I just think it was. Um, how would I put it? I think it was perhaps a little more volatile back then. Now I'm not saying volatile. There was, of course, you can go. As they used to call them, where literally a driver nearly died every race. Uh, you know, you could go back to that. And think back then it was a bit. Um, you know, there was a bit of doggy dog out there. You know, people didn't get on as well. Well, maybe they did, maybe maybe they don't these days either. Uh, but people argued a bit more and shouted and waved fists at each other a bit more. And it was a bit, a bit more demanding in certain circumstances. Well, the team principal would be up telling you to do well, and he wouldn't mind doing it in the middle. Uh, it was a lot different. So his time. I think if he was around today, he'd be around a hell of a lot longer. You know, really much, much longer. He's a really nice fella. He's a guy I I, I would love to bump into. I'd say he could tell you stories for, for days. <laughs> yeah. You know that? I mean, you know, if he was here, if he was um, racing nowadays, he probably would have had a, he, he probably would be around a hell of a lot longer. What would you attribute that to? That he'd be last longer? Well, the contracts not. Um, I, mean, I mean, the thing about about John Alesi is he came in and it was kind of go 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 go. You this with most drivers, but but these days there's kind of a more of a right set yourself in there now. We put you in the B team. I mean, there's there's Ferrari, Alfa Romeo, and Haas, and he's put in Haas on quite a lot of Haas. Um, so he's put in there to learn first. You know your way up you know when you get better it's the same with Red Bull you went to Tyre Russell first whereas kind of I suppose back in his day you got to drive and you were thankful you got it and you moved forward whereas that was kind of um, it was almost a progression of a career is that the way to put it often you work your way in and you learn the trade and you do all after a few years, then you've got closer up to the front and things like that. And and then there's the wind down years too, where people are looking for your experience and figure for them and tell them about cars and how and how to improve. You know, I, I I think back then there wasn't some there wasn't that at all really. Uh, there was nothing like that. There was no kind of second team that wasn't going to say the, the original team. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, Red Bull Light as opposed to Red Bull which there is with Rosso so I definitely think he would have been around a lot longer because you know rather than being thrown into a Tyrrell and go hell bent for leather and then straight into a Ferrari I think he would have been given a couple of years just to figure himself out and improve it and get used to the car and you know so probably by year three or year four he'd only really be starting serious 
Um, I think that there's a bit more longevity these days compared to where unless you're you know Air Senate Alan Prost so you know what I mean who going to be nice yeah. for you know a long long time but uh, I, I mean I, I'm finding these days too it's very hard you, you, you don't have as many buzz names as you used to you know you used to have all like four or five drivers you would win it's not like that anymore either which which maybe is quite sad but you know it would be nice to see did actually uh, a couple of episodes of a, a TV show called Pole Position. It, TV show, and thank God for subtitles as well. Um, but he actually was a commentator on that for quite some time. I did notice, and you know, all his work wasn't wasn't uh, didn't all go away, as to say, it didn't all add up to nothing. Because um, in two thousand six, um, he was awarded a knight in the French Legion of Honor. So that that's pretty good for him now. I have to admit, and I see yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I'm actually looking at a picture of him here as well at the Geneva International Motor Show in 2019, and he's doing a bit of work for a couple of guys there, you know. So he is still around. He's a nice guy. I really, it was a, I, I thought it was a sad day when he moved because I really liked the guy. He had, um, he had a bit of guts, do you know what I mean? He 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 called the spade the spade, as to say, you know what I mean. He didn't um, didn't mince his words too often, uh, as a general rule, you know. Where does he live now? You'd wonder. It's a good one because when I spotted, I I knew about this because I've seen a couple of uh, TV programs. I I I do like an odd glass of wine, and um, I'm sure quite a lot of people do. And I do watch the odd TV. And yes, Jean Alessi is a wine connoisseur with a large vineyard in Avignon near his um, hometown where he uh, lives with his wife, who's a Japanese model, believe it or not, and a pop singer um, and her three children. Um, so there you go. Um, that's where Jean Alessi is these days, is to say. I'm not a bad place to be. <laughs> What? It, it, it's, not a, it's not a bad place to be at all, is it? <laughs> is no. really, you know? I wouldn't be as good oh, as Wexford. I wouldn't yeah, be as no, good no, as Wexford. I, I retire to my vineyard. You know, I, I buy a vineyard. <laughs> your vineyard in, in, in Wexford. <laughs> <laughs> that is the legend, and to me, the absolute total legend. He's, he's one of my favourite yeah. drivers, I have to admit. He really is something else now. Really, really brilliant to have seen him years ago in action, as to say, you know, and a fun guy sometimes. <laughs> that's it, that's it. And I suppose to wrap up the show, uh, since we were talking to you last week, there's been a bit of a shake-up in some of the teams, oh, uh, a, bit, a few oh, personnel changes uh, in Formula 1 there in some of the teams since we, we spoke to you last week. There's a lots of bits and, bits and pieces, to be quite honest with you. Um, we know Piastri and Sargent and Veer are going to race in 2023 and that's absolutely fine we we knew that one was coming um the, the one we didn't really know was coming i don't think when it snuck up on me maybe i just wasn't looking um but of course you know the team principal of mclaren and williams are departing i mean what <laughs> when did that happen andreas siegel i think his name is and uh and and just capito uh about, uh how will i put it there's been a kind of a bit of a storm of change at the minute you know i mean with matteo bonato leaving um that was kind of the first one of the big guys really uh and everything about bonato I don't think it was coming about Bonato until this year. 
I mm. think Benadryl has been doing a very good job. And to get the car to where it was at the start of this year, I think people were more than happy with him. But I, I think it's just the bad planning, the bad tactics, the bad calls, the disorganisation. He just, they know well as anyone. I, I'm sorry, he's, a, he's very good at what he does. But really, Matteo Bonotto was the together Ferrari not winning this year I think and Ferrari are the, that opinion too where he's going to end up next is a good question but um, you know it's kind of just, just seems an avalanche at the moment now Andreas Seidler he is not too bad because he has got another job he is actually joining um, basically Sauber as the chief executive officer so that, that man's going to be very happy with himself but you know, you, you'd you have to scratch your head and wonder where it came from because I I, I absolutely have no idea what happened there, uh, what exactly went in along there. Fred is supposed to be vacating his role uh, and he's kind of dovetailing, I, I think, or, or perhaps he's going to take over from Matteo Bonato. It all seems a bit crazy at the minute. Your head would nearly be spinning um, with the amount of things that are just all of a sudden coming out of the that, that's what it wouldn't do you much good Michael uh, no that's very true I, I think a lot of uh, racing team principals and stuff like that are, are probably on the um, you know the, the old uh, uh, stubbies to stomach setters now at the moment you know just to, to, to keep going as they say <laughs> yeah, you know? we'll see nice. what happens there you know we'll see what happens along with that one <laughs> <laughs> So listen, thanks very much for taking the time out to do Formula One View with us and uh, we look forward to talking to you again next week. No problems at all, Aidan. Talk to you then. Thank you very much. And that was Michael O'Grady, our Formula One expert. Hello everyone, how you doing? You're very welcome back to Friday Sport with myself, Aidan Rafferty and the show is as always kindly sponsored by Best Drive here in Roscommon Town. Well, we all, we, as always, we like to bring you some uh, positive interviews and uh, we, he's a guy that we've had on, on the show before, uh, maybe a year or so ago and his name is Wesley O'Brien. Hello Wesley, how are you? Are you well? Hello, Aidan. How are you keeping? Not too okay. bad. Not too bad. Good to hear. And, uh, yeah, you're a guy, as I said there, we had you on there before, and you're, you're doing uh, lots of brilliant uh, lots of brilliant tennis camps uh, across Europe and, and, and around Ireland. But this is a unique one. Your, your, latest, uh, your latest camp is for uh, people or kids with, 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 uh, that are blind. Could you tell us a bit about the, the idea behind that and how that's going for you? Um, yes. Um, yeah, it's... It, I mean, blind tennis and visually impaired tennis, it's, it's only recently become a thing um, kind of in Ireland, a program. It's only really been in Ireland since 2017. Um, and it's kind of new to Europe as a whole. Um, it kind of began in, in Japan, actually, in 1984 um, by a guy called Mr. Miyoshi Takai. Um, so it's been going strong in Japan for about 30 years. Um, since 1984 and the guy in question actually he he was a totally blind person um but he was always interested in sports yeah um and obviously for obvious reasons he kind of felt he couldn't you know play the regular form of you know of tennis and he found out that there was no way of of playing tennis for you know if you're visually impaired or blind so he kind of went about the idea of putting a bell inside in a foam ball and just starting from there. And so it's all based on kind of the sound of the ball and 
uh, you know, hearing the ball and tracking the ball is a big part of it. That's great, and uh, that that that's a, a very clever idea. And I suppose a lot of people would be wondering how how do they get the the bell into the ball? But obviously, that's part of it when when uh, the ball is being manufactured because this is a special ball, especially for blind tennis. Yeah, um, yes, it's actually it's it's made of foam. Um, it's I suppose. I mean, if you've ever seen one of the children's slitters, you know they're quite yeah. big. You know, in the start off playing, it's roughly about that size. And it's a foam ball with a little ping pong ball inside and then ball bearings inside in the ping pong ball. So it's kind of designed out of foam. So kind of the harder you hit it, it actually slows down a little bit. You know, there's not much weight to the ball where, 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 we, where it would kind of keep on going. Um, so especially designed... Um, for kind of each category, I suppose, yeah. And I suppose for, for you yourself, as a, uh, do, doing a, being a tennis coach and all that, uh, was there any additional training you had to do for this on, on how to train others or how to, uh, I suppose, do a tennis camp for, for partially blind or fully blind people? Um, not really so much. Um, it it kind of started for me, you know, early on, like I said, in around 2017. Um, I was lucky enough to go... To a tennis coaching conference in Bulgaria and of course I'd never heard of visually impaired or blind tennis before but there was two Spanish guys um, out in the court and they were given a demonstration on on blind and visually impaired tennis um, so I really got interested from there and I spoke to the guys in question um, at the conference and when I came back then I, I found out that there was only really uh, two little hubs that were doing it in Ireland at the time um, which was Belfast and Shankill in Dublin. So I reached out to the people in Shankill in Dublin and I expressed my interest. Um, so I kind of was traveling up and down to Dublin and it was kind of getting hands-on experience. There was no real training, you know, involved. It was just getting involved straight out in court with the players. Um, you know, it's all got to do with patience and, you know, enthusiasm. Um, and a lot of that time, like I said, there was two hubs, one in Shankill and one in Belfast. So, you know, at the time I got involved, they were preparing for the second ever World Championships. And they were trying to put together an Irish team from Shankill and Belfast. So I kind of got involved with the Irish team through that as well. Um, so it kind of carried on from there. It was just... It was just kind of hands-on experience. And uh, just to let the listeners know that, uh, you know, that maybe haven't heard the last interview that we did with you, just to tell them a bit of background about yourself as well before we, we go on. Um, yeah, I, I am, I've been a tennis coach down here in Killaloo in County Clare um, for the last eight years. And it's really in the last four or five years now that I've kind of found other avenues of tennis to kind of get involved with. Um, and one of those, apart from the visually impaired and the blind tennis, is that um, since 2018, I've started an initiative called Hit and Hope Tennis, where I would um, travel to different refugee camps around Europe, and I'd bring all the tennis gear with me and the rackets and the balls, and I would basically do kind of a tennis camp or a workshop with the kids in the camp or the adults for about for a week or 10 days, um, and then with the goal being of when I leave the camp, when it's time to come home, I would leave all the equipment with them um, as a gift so they can keep the program going. Um, so when I come back to Ireland, and it's always kind of generating new equipment and new tennis balls and all that. But, you know, I kind of didn't see, you know, you know I kind of didn't see 
the goodness in, you know, traveling all that way with the equipment and then bringing it back with me. So I just gift it, you know, to the camp and to the NGO to kind of keep it going. And, uh, of course, that's, a, that's an invaluable gift for those kids and the, and the people of those those countries where you did the camp as well, which which is great. And I suppose, you know, um, now that you're involved with the visually impaired, um, the Irish team for the uh, visually impaired tennis, it must, be an exci- it must be an exciting time for you to be involved in, in this Irish team and being, uh, being one, of the, one of the coaches on board. And I suppose playing your part in... Uh, in in hel- in helping visually impaired kids kids or indeed indeed adults um, taking up a new skill in tennis because it is um, it, it's not as easy maybe as people as people think uh, tennis in general never mind uh, tennis for visually impaired and blind people absolutely absolutely I mean I've seen you know I've seen people come to the classes we beat in Shankill or in Killaloo here um, I have one lady in question now that's with me. Um, Ma- uh, Marguerite Quinn and she was uh, 2017 she was a prominent school teacher um, down here in Limerick uh, and one of the biggest pr- uh, one of the biggest primary schools in Limerick and unfortunately in 2017 she suffered a brain aneurysm oh dear and she collapsed yeah um, and you know it wasn't looking good I mean she told me herself she was on life support and you know she was in a bad position, but like she came through it. But there was a bleed. I thought there was a bleed in the brain, and like when they drained the blood, it had to go somewhere. So some of it went down into the cornea and into the eyes. So she would be visually impaired. Um, but like since she started tennis with me now last last January, you know we've taken a trip to Poland to, to an international tournament in which she won the bronze medal. And she competed in the UK Championships there in um, in November over in Wales. So, you know, it's kind of opened up a whole new life for her. You know, it's a whole new motivation for her now. You know, so it's it's you know it's fantastic. And you know, you kind of get different. You know, like in regard to the visually impaired tennis, you would have different categories, like based on your sight level. So they would range from B1, B2, B3, and B4. So B1, tennis would be for people who are completely blind. So they would have no vision whatsoever. And the game is played like regular tennis, like regular scoring and all that. But they would have three bounces of the ball. Yeah. And B2s would have three bounces. Uh, B3s would have two bounces and B4s would have one bounce. So the higher the number you go, the more sight you would have. That's great, and uh, you know, I suppose it's uh, it's exciting for you as well to be part of this as well. And uh, is it you know f- for this? Is it still is it still open to to people, or has the squad um, for the tournament has it has it been picked yet, or what, what's the la- what's what, what's coming up in the next year or so? Well, like the like the main thing now is trying to grow as many um, hubs in Ireland as we can. You know, we have mm. one in Killaloo, we have one in Cork, we have one in Galway in Dublin, in Nace. So, you know, they're getting a bit more now, like, around the country. So it's kind of recruiting more players now at the moment. Um, like, the World Championships now are going to be in Birmingham um, mm. next August. Very and good. They're going to be, for the first time ever, they're going to be part of the International Blind Sports Games. So it's, it's kind of going to be like an Olympic Games for visually impaired and blind sports. Um, but as of now, it's just... You know, trying to grow it, and then you know, and you know, as we come a bit closer now to kind of August, um, we'll probably organise as many tournaments as we can and get more players involved, and then you know, see where we go from there. 
And of course, it's it's open to boys and girls of all ages, and from I suppose kids up up to adults as well. And uh, you know, if it's people who want to get involved, how how do they get involved? Or is there a number or a, a website that they can go on to uh, find out more information? Well, I think the best way of of you know learning more now is through Tennis Ireland's disability uh, program, which is called the Enjoy Tennis program. And, you know, if you go on to their website, enjoytennis.com, uh, .ie, I think, um, you'll find out information about all types of disability tennis, be it, dis- uh, uh, be it wheelchair tennis or visually impaired tennis or special needs tennis. You know, and it's all run through that. So, you know, go online, uh, enjoytennis.ie. It's through Tennis Ireland. And you'll find a contact name. My name is probably there. Um, and it's just a case of reaching out to them and seeing um, like if your local club or where the nearest club is. That's it. And, uh, of course, uh, just to tell people about your, your own website or your own uh, Facebook page and if they want to, if they want to con- contact you for any further advice or, or things like that, um, can you give them your, your um, Facebook page? Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, my own programme, that I said, <coughs> is called Hit and Hope. So H-I-T and Hope. Um, I have a Facebook page on there. Um, in, in January now, next year, January the 8th to the 16th, I'll be taking my, my seventh trip um, over to one of these camps. It's a near Cavalli camp in, in Tesmaliki in, in Greece, and hopefully another camp in, in Serbia in April. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's hit and hope. So, like, check me out on the Facebook and feel free to reach out. Um, you know, please do. No problem. Well, listen, thanks very much for taking the time out to do the interview with us. We'd like to wish you a very Merry Christmas to you and your family uh, and everyone involved and, of course, the Irish team, the partial bl- partial site and uh, the fully the blinded uh, the Ireland team. And, uh, of course, we'd like to wish you all the best for, for next year and in everything that you do. So uh, we hope to contact you. Hopefully we'll, we'll keep in touch as well and uh, you can give us regular updates. Oh, please do, Aidan. And I just no want... And I just want to wish yourself and your listeners a very Merry Christmas as well, and thanks for having me on. No problem. Thanks very much. And uh, that was Wesley O'Brien from Hidden Hope, and he's also involved in Parachute Sighted and Blind uh, blind Tennis. So thanks very much there, Wesley. And uh, so um, there you go. Thank you. Bye. Hello, everyone. How are you doing? You're very welcome back to Friday Sport here on Ross of M 94.6 with myself, Aidan Rafferty. And the show is always kindly sponsored by Best Drive here in Ross Common Town. I'd like to thank Best Drive for their kind sponsorship of the show in 2022. And we're looking forward to their continued uh, sponsorship in 2023. And we hope you enjoyed everything that we had for you on Friday Sports throughout 2022 and um, I'd just like to take this opportunity to wish you and your families all the very best and uh, we hope you'll tune back in in 2023 and I'd also like to say happy Christmas and a prosperous new year to all my colleagues here in Ross FM as well and uh, indeed everyone that has contributed to the show in 2022 so it just remains for me to say happy Christmas to everyone and we look forward to talking to you in uh, after the Christmas so thank you very much bye